The scripture reading, reading is taken from Matthew chapter 23, verses 9 through 12. Matthew chapter 23, verses 9 through 12. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts, exalts himself will be humbled, and he, will, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. passage that Dean has just read in our hearing is not a passage that's very long, but I believe it constitutes one of the greatest challenges that uh, confronts every child of God. I appreciate so very much the, the songs that Izzy has led us in this morning, and I think that the one song that embodies the essence of this lesson better than any other is humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. That's really what this lesson is all about. Even visitors who come into our auditorium can look at the walls and see what our theme has been for this year uh, because of uh, certain diversions that have taken place. We haven't been spending a whole lot of time talking about it, but I do before we uh, run out of year, I want us to, to look at that theme one more time. I was uh, thinking this past week in my mind about if we had to do this over again and we knew what all was going to transpire in 2020, would we have chosen a different theme? That's something to chew on, isn't it? What, what would be a good theme knowing what we, what we know now this far into 2020? And so I was racking my brain trying to think of something that might be more appropriate. I realized that the word pandemonium is not found in scripture. Uh, I was thinking maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul uses the phrase, considering the present distress, that might work. But uh, after thinking about that for just a few minutes, I thought, well, I think what we've got works fine. Surely this is a year where we need to, to define and refine our focus to make sure that our spiritual vision is that which God would have it to be. And I think most of all, to recognize that when we wake up every morning and we go to bed every night, that we have been focusing on and looking at and living our lives by a set of priorities is that which God would have us to be living by. And so I want to begin this lesson this morning by sharing with you four quotations from four best-selling books not that many years back. And I want you to just kind of reflect on, obviously these can't be very long, but they do kind of embody the premise of each of those books, and uh, they, they certainly are a, a springboard for this, uh, this study this morning. So consider these statements. This one comes from page 303 of Winning Through Intimidation. It was, in fact, I think the, the number one best-selling book at, at the time. The quote goes like this, Nothing you do is going to matter 50 billion years from now anyway, so relax, cool it, don't take yourself so seriously. After all, life is just a game. 
The next one sounds like this. Looking out for number one is the conscious, rational effort to spend as much time as possible doing those things which bring you the greatest amount of pleasure and less time on those things that cause pain. That's page 10 from looking out for number one. The next quotation reads like this. To live for his own sake means that the achievement of his own happiness is man's highest moral purpose. That's from a book, not surprisingly, entitled The Virtue of Selfishness, page 27. And then the last one comes from Pulling Your Own Strings, page 184. And this quotation goes like this. You are sinning only if you believe you are. And each person in the world can judge sin any way he chooses. Now, obviously, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I do want you in the quietness of your own mind to answer this question. How do you feel about those statements? Are they right or wrong? I believe that we all understand, if we have any spiritual understanding at all, that those statements strike us as, as being absolutely dead wrong. Because the bottom line is, sooner or later, we all have to choose a worldview. We have to decide on what philosophy we're going to live by. And all of these quotations that I've just shared from these books are pointing us in the absolutely wrong direction. Even the text that uh, Dean read a moment ago tells us that the way up is down in the kingdom of Christ. That in order to be exalted, we must humble ourselves. And that the more intent we are on exalting ourselves, the more we will be, in fact, humbled in this life. Jesus made that clear to his apostles. He made that clear to his disciples in general. And I think that he's made that abundantly clear to us in his revealed word. There's a lot of encouragement in this world, and I don't have to tell you this, to live only for self. To step around or over or even on anyone who might get in your way. But that's the world's philosophy. And Jesus is giving us a philosophy that is entirely and radically different from that. That philosophy, by the way, that we just shared with those four quotations, basically is a, is a mixture of philosophies. Here's what I mean by that. The philosophy and attitude toward God reflected in those four quotations is that of agnosticism. The agnostic is the one who tells you that you cannot positively prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists. And so what you need to do is just ignore him as you're making your plans. You just factor the concept of God completely out of your plans for the future. The philosophy toward others is that of cynicism. Other people are out to get what is rightfully yours. So it's every man for himself. Don't trust anyone. Make sure that you're always looking out for yourself, which brings us to the third concept. And the philosophy toward self is that of individualism. We're told that we should look out for ourselves because nobody else will. And don't do anything for anyone else unless it also benefits you. The philosophy toward things is materialism. Get all you can as you go through life. Deny yourself nothing. Or as the bumper sticker says, he who dies with the most toys wins. And the philosophy toward morality is that of relativism. Don't let anybody tell you what you should or should not do. You do your own thing. You follow your own heart. You decide what is truth for you, and everybody else can decide what's truth for them. And if you'll just leave one another along, we'll be able to, to live peaceably in this world. And we're hearing that over and over and over again. Maybe not in those words, but that's the message that is being pushed upon us, even in our entertainment media, even in the songs that we're hearing played on the radio, and in every other media 
uh, of life, we're hearing the idea that what's right for me may not be what's right for you. So it's the concept of moral relativism. Is that what God's word has suggested? Is that what God is telling his people, in fact, is recommending for all people, that we ought to live by that philosophy, by that worldview? By the way, when I was reading those four quotations a moment ago, there was an addendum and a response to that in the acknowledgments of another book that I have in my library by a fellow by the name of Gerald Nachman. And in that, uh, in that acknowledgment, he, he asked this provocative question about those books that were best-selling that I mentioned a moment ago. And here's the question that, that Nachman asked. What happens when somebody who's been reading Winning Through Intimidation sits next to someone at a party who has just finished Power, How to Get It and How to Use It? And Mr. Power tells Mr. Intimidation to put his cigar out and make it snappy. Well, that is a good question, at least on the practical plane. You see, the problem with everybody looking out for number one is that that's a tremendously selfish way to live. And we simply cannot live either with each other or even with ourselves. If we try to live by that philosophy, it just does not work in the practical world. But I believe the really relevant question here is, and it's, it's the one that, that causes us to even ask any of the other questions that we've already addressed this morning, is, is how can we be happy? How can we find fulfillment and satisfaction in life? I think that's the primary reason why God allowed the book of Ecclesiastes to be in the canon, to be an inspired book that, that, that tells us how Solomon did the very thing that still all these thousands of years later, human beings are continuing to do. And that is how do, how do we find meaning, purpose, and happiness in life? Everybody in the right mind is looking for those things. And so the question is, can we get it by winning through intimidation? Or we do it by the way that God has suggested According to the books that we have just uh, mentioned, the only answer is, well, you've got to look out for number one. It's every man for himself. Always say, me first in every situation. And that's been the philosophy, by the way, of all the dictators and all the military despots that the world has ever known, including a lot of other people. But there's an opposite philosophy from that one just considered. And it was one that was championed by no less than Jesus Christ himself. He taught that if you want to find real meaning and happiness and purpose and gratification and satisfaction in life, then you cannot, you cannot spend your days trying to dominate your fellow man. What you do is you spend your days learning to serve your fellow man. Now, that's very easy for me to say on a, on a wonderful Sunday morning, but very difficult when it comes to practical application because it's, it's hard for us to take the focus off ourselves and began to look at other people. Stop asking what it is that I want and began to ask what is it that everyone else needs. And then how can I be an instrument used by God to help God to accomplish that in their lives? Because once I understand that the more I focus on me and my own selfish ambitions and my own personal needs, the unhappier I'm going to be. Now, that doesn't sound right if you're listening to it through worldly ears, but that's what God's word says, that it's counterproductive to live in a, with a worldly philosophy of I'm looking out for number one. I'm going to make sure that, that my needs are met every day that I wake up, and when I go to bed, I'm going to be gratified by that kind of life, and, and God says that's, that's not the way it works. 
it all boils down, I guess, to really one question, and that is which of these two philosophies is, is right. If there's a God, if he did create us, if he does know what's best for us, if God is a sovereign God and has the ultimate authority to direct our lives, then the whole concept of looking out for number one and ignoring the rights, the needs, and the feelings of others is just terribly wrong. And if you have to write that down somewhere to remember it, I hope you will. We need to understand how wrong it is and how right God's way for living our lives really is. By the way, God, God never stooped to looking out for number one, did he? Think about all the way to the beginning. Had that been the case, if God was only concerned about his needs, wants, and ambitions, it would have been counterproductive to even created man. Because as it turns out, man was more than just a companion. He became a competitor. And once God created us, the Bible tells us, starting with Genesis chapter 1, beginning, that God got emotionally involved in our needs. You don't read anything, even in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, about how, God, how self-centered God was. God made man. And God immediately became interested in man's welfare, both physical and spiritual. And that becomes very apparent by the time you get to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And once he created us, he got emotionally involved in our needs. And he certainly wasn't, he certainly wasn't looking out for number one when he allowed selfish men to kill his son on that cross. What about Jesus himself? Well, if he had been looking out for number one, would he have left heaven to come and, and live as a man on this planet? I, I don't think so. In fact, here's how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 beginning. You, you know the verse, but feel free to turn there and follow along if you'd like. Philippians 2, 5 beginning. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And, and here's the real point but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now we've got other places like John 1 that tell us about how that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 verse 14. But here Paul is beginning to, to, to define and describe for us the practicality, the reasoning behind that incarnation. Why Jesus would do that in the first place. There's a man by the name of L.E. Maxwell who has a book intriguingly entitled Born Crucified. Chew on that for a moment. Born Crucified. And in it he says this. Christ was the only one who before conception ever chose his mother, chose his place of birth, and chose his residence. Think about that for a moment. If you had been permitted to choose the circumstances of your birth, what would you have chosen? You know, I have a feeling that most of us would have chosen to be born into a family of wealth, maybe even in, into the royal family, so that we wouldn't have to be worried about the day-to-day -day concerns of even going to work, that all of our material needs would be provided for from the time you're born into this world until the time you die. But the Bible says, intriguingly, that Jesus chose to be born into poverty and that he spent his early days working hard in his father's carpenter's shop. And he even had occasion one time to say of himself, and this, by the way, is in Luke 9, 58, if you want to check it out. He said, the birds of the air have nests. You know the passage. The foxes have holes. But the Son of Man has nowhere 
to even lay his head. Think about that. The Son of God had no place even to rest comfortably at night. No place to, to pillow his head at night. And, and you have to ask, as, as a child, as a disciple of that Jesus, why did he choose to come to earth in the first place? And, and why did he choose such a difficult life? Well, certainly it wasn't because he was looking out for number one. I believe it was because he was looking out for us. Amen? When we, when we feel it, fully grasp that concept, I think it makes us even more appreciative of why we gather around this table every Sunday morning. And we spend this time talking about and thinking about that, that great sacrifice that Jesus made and how that he would, was nailed to the cross when he didn't have to be. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But even just coming to this world and taking on the form of a servant, not just a man, it says, but taking on the form of a servant and dying the death on the cross. One item we don't want to miss in all of this is the very simple fact, as I just mentioned, that he did, not, he did not have to die. He had the power to defeat his enemies. And when he was arrested, and this is Matthew chapter 26, verses 52 and 53, the Bible says that Peter in the garden, you remember how this played out, he, he drew a sword to defend the Lord. But Jesus immediately reminded Peter that power was not what he was bereft of at that moment. The father could have easily sent 12 legions of angels on a search and rescue mission and could have extricated Jesus from that situation and his life could have been preserved. Think about the power of that. I mean, I, we're talking about 72,000 angels poised for combat, all ready to come at his command. And yet he never once made the call. He never called those 72,000 angels to come and take him from the cross or from that situation. He didn't call for them. Instead, what he did say, and this is John 10, verses 17 beginning, he said, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He said, I want you to know that what I am doing is voluntary. No one is making me die. I could put a stop to this at any nanosecond that I decided, but I'm laying down my life of my own accord. That ought to inform us, shouldn't it? When we live our lives, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that Jesus did what he did for each of us deliberately. It was intentional. It was not accidental. He did not get himself into a bad situation that he could not get out of. Jesus said, I lay down my life of my own accord. I, I repeat, folks, all of that means that he was not looking out for number one. He was looking out for us. And aren't we eternally grateful that he did? He lived for us, and more importantly, Scripture says over and over again that he died for us, that vicarious death doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then Paul goes on to say in, in that Philippians 2, and verse, this time verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. The most embarrassing, humiliating, painful way that a person could die. Which brings us full circle to you have to choose a philosophy to live by. You've got to refine your focus and decide what kind of philosophy am I going, what kind of worldview 
Am I going to have, and, and, and how is that going to color and influence and inform everything, every decision that I make on a daily basis? You see, the humbling of self described in Scripture is really opposite the philosophies found in the books that we mentioned earlier, and I think that's apparent to anyone who can see through a ladder. But each of us has to decide who we'll follow. Jesus was absolutely correct in the Sermon of the Mount when he said, No man can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one, love the other, cling to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in this world's goods and interests. So you have to decide, first of all, who you're going to serve. And then you've got to decide how you're going to serve him. How, what philosophy, or what worldview that you're going to have in, in trying to live for that, that sovereign God. And, and, and which philosophy that we will use each day, whether that's of, of Jesus or that of these authors that we, that we quoted in the beginning of the lesson. You see, the self-serving laws of just getting ahead can't be better stated than just the titles of some of those books I mentioned, like Looking Out for Number One or Winning Through Intimidation. And yet Jesus gave us this spiritual law that's very different. He said, he said things like this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, the way up is down in the kingdom of Christ. If you want God to exalt you, you can't spend your days and your time exalting yourself. That's the way that works. But if you will humble yourself, if you will become a servant, if you will develop a servant's heart, then the God of the universe will make sure in due time that you will be exalted. That doesn't mean that you'll be president of the United States because my personal opinion is he wouldn't do that to you. But it does mean that when the time is right, that you will be exalted. You will be acknowledged as one of his. You will be one of his sons or daughters. And, and you'll have all the rights and privileges of being adopted into his spiritual family. You see, in the first two cases, he was speaking to those, well, I meant to say this first. He, he made a, that statement that I just mentioned about exalting, your, not exalting yourself and, and, and then you'll be exa exalted by God, but rather humbling yourself. He made that on three different occasions. That's called space repetition. That's the way we learn. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up and even in the training of our own children, have you noticed you can't just tell children one time to do something? You got to say it over and over again. If you're trying to memorize something, you can't, I can't just read through a verse of scripture and guess what? I've got it. No, it doesn't work that way. Space repetition. So Jesus three times told his disciples, now listen, if you want to be exalted, you got to humble yourself. But if you spend your life humbling yourself, then God will exalt you. And, and in each of those instances, he aimed at those who were looking out for number one. That is, there was a problem that Jesus was trying to remedy. And in the first two cases, he was speaking to those who were competing for positions of honor at banquets and in religious services. You know the passages where they wanted to be seated in prominent positions so everybody would know that you are the special guest at that banquet or maybe in that religious service and who were seeking titles of honor and respect. They just wanted to be looked up to by everyone around them. And I read those passages and I think we haven't really changed a whole lot, have we, in the last 2,000 years? There's a lot of folks out there that have that same desire and same ambition to be looked up to by everyone around them. And the third case, when Jesus said this, he was speaking to those who considered themselves to be spiritually superior to everybody else. 
And he clearly told them if they wanted God to exalt them, that they could not exalt themselves. When Paul talked about Jesus' refusal to look out for number one, to look out for his own self-interests, his willingness to submit to God's will for the benefit of others, even to the point of death on the cross. He then said in the very next verse of Philippians 2, this is verse 9 beginning, he said, Therefore, that is for this reason, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Jesus clearly humbled himself. He was willing to die on the cross when he could have prevented that. So once you have been humbled, you'll always stay humbled. No. God's son was given a name above every name. Please don't forget, when we read the story of the cross, that is not the last chapter in the book. And when you deliberately humble yourself and become a servant to others, and I mean in practical, tangible, hands-on kind of ways... That is not the end of the story. And I know that our motivation for humbling ourselves and serving others ought not to be so that someday everybody will be able to see the crown we're wearing. But the way that God has worked this divine order is that he's going to make sure that you are among those who are exalted when the Lord himself comes back and claims his own. That he will be able to point to you and call you by name and say, that's my son. And that's my daughter. And what a wonderful day that will be. In fact, that will be greater than be acknowledged by any dignitary that may walk this earth. So God has highly exalted him, that is Christ, and given him a name that's above every name. He goes on. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory to the glory of God the Father. Well, James agreed with that principle, and he put it in the form of a promise over in James chapter 4, verse 10, when he said, you humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So ultimate happiness is to be found not in looking out for number one, not by pulling your own strings, not by winning through intimidation, but by serving. And you may be thinking right now, you know, I knew all that when I came in here. But that's, again, why that the responsibility and the job of a gospel preacher is to remind people of what they already know. So consider this a reminder. Basically, when preachers stand up, they ought to begin every lesson with, let's review. Because you may have heard all of this, but I believe we all need to be reminded. It's a hard lesson to learn, and that's why the reminders are so desperately needed. Especially when skillful authors, writers come at us with their best-selling book showing us the techniques and the alleged rewards of self-serving. Apparently, it was a problem for Jesus' own apostles. Let me give you a couple examples, and then we'll be through with this study. Even on the night before his death, they were arguing about, and, and, and I hope you didn't miss that. I said it rather quickly. On the night before his death, chronologically speaking, 24 hours before he died, what were his apostles talking about? Who is, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Can you imagine? Uh, that breaks my heart reading that 2,000 years later. 
And, and Jesus then said in Luke twenty two twenty six is where it's recorded, let the greatest, when he overheard them talking about that, uh, who's the greatest in the kingdom, let the, the, the greatest among you become the servant of all. It was almost like, now before I die, I want to hammer this lesson home one more time. It isn't the greatest in the kingdom. It isn't the most prominent place that you ought to be seeking for. And then, lest they miss the point, the Bible says he took up a towel and a basin of water and he washed the feet of every one of those 12 apostles, even Judas. And after he finished, he said, and this is John 13, verses 14 and 15, If then your Lord and I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash each other's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done for you. So here is the lesson, and here is the object demonstration of how that works. Well, Judas was apparently missing that day when that, when that lesson was, was being taught because still looking out for number one, the Bible says over in Matthew, I think, chapter 26, about verse 15, he, he went to the enemies of Jesus and asked this question, what will you give me if I identify this Jesus for you? And you and I know that he betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. Simon Peter apparently had problems with the concept of abasing yourself too. When Jesus told the disciples that all of them would fall away and forsake him, you may remember in Mark 14, verse 29, Peter said, even though they all fall away, I will not. Probably thinking they're not made out of the same stuff as I am. They may fall away, but I won't. But we know that he was faced with saving his own skin. He started looking out for number one. And he denied even knowing Jesus, even having any allegiance or affiliation with him at all. And he did that three times. Now, to his credit, obviously, he repented and he changed and he came back to the Savior's side. And we learned a great deal, I think, about Simon Peter's heart then. Looking out for number one was, was not his style. And he was going to later become, develop and mature into a very unselfish man. And he was granted the keys of the kingdom and preached the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he was one of the most prominent players in the infant church, at least in the, uh, the, the first half of the book of Acts. And, and then the apostle Paul is another good example. Not that Paul could not grasp this concept, but that he did in such a marvelous fashion. He could have written a persuasive bestseller on looking out for number one if he wanted to. We know that Saul, also known as Paul, was an overachiever his entire life. And he once said in Galatians 1.14 that I have advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age. But all of that changed. Don't miss that. All of that changed when he began to follow Jesus. And he said in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, whatever gain I had, please let this impact not just your mind, but your heart, dear church, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as refuse, as, as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. What are you willing to give in order to continue your allegiance and your discipleship of Jesus, Paul? And Paul's answer would be immediate. He wouldn't even have to think about it. He said, I'm willing to give everything. I'm willing to give anything. I will not substitute anything for my knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, as we noticed two weeks ago in Galatians 2.20, is where he said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. 
Paul realized that looking out for number one was the absolute wrong thing to do. And when he came to really believe in the Christ, he changed and he repented of his past life. And then God's preacher Ananias came to him and said, Paul, or Saul at that time, Saul, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And that's Acts 22 and verse 16, of course. And then later, when Paul thought about that baptism, he asked those Roman Christians in Romans 6, verse 2, beginning, how can we who have died to sin continue any longer in it? That's a really good question. If we've really changed our philosophy of life, if we've really changed our worldview when we became disciples of Jesus Christ, we made the decision at some point to walk down that aisle and to give the preacher our hand and God our heart and to say to the church, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and to be baptized so that his blood could cover everyone, not most of, every one of our sins. If we came to that point at some point in our lives, it changes everything. Paul said, I don't even think the way I used to think. What's important to me now isn't what was important then, and vice versa. So simply stated, it's a matter of changing our philosophy of life and choosing whether we're going to live by the philosophy of God's holy word, the Bible, that characterizes every true disciple, or the philosophy of self-serving that characterizes the world. Someone has said, I think aptly, that within every heart there is a throne and a cross. And either Christ is on the throne and self is on the cross, or self is on the throne and Christ is on the cross. That either-or choice is, man, it's admittedly hard to make. And we'd much better rather compromise. I heard a man who said one time, I was quite willing that Jesus should be the king in my life as long as he would let me be prime minister. Doesn't work that way. Each of us has to make a choice. And I hope that your choice this morning is to choose a life in Christ Jesus while we stand, while we sing. Bye.